We turn to 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle to the elect strangers scattered across the face of the earth, chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4. Our text consists of the last three verses of the chapter, beginning at verse 1. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. He no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may have sufficed us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. He's writing, of course, to many who were newly converted out of paganism. When we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they, that is your relatives, with whom you've parted ways, think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. That is, was preached to bring life to you who were once part of those who simply lived in excess of rioting and so on. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And of all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another. That is, be of service one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, that it will be of service, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Notice that phrase. We will make mention of that phrase in our introduction. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody, in other men's matters. I pause again. Interesting. Notice the seriousness of these crimes, you might say. Murder, theft, evil doing, and included in that gossip and the tongue. Tongues that slander and demean. God takes that as serious as murder 
and theft. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And now our text. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And he wants us to lay that to heart. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing. Might as well said good works. Godliness. As unto a faithful creator. Thus far the reading of the epistle. The last three verses that we read comprise our text. The context is of importance. Verses 15 and 16, as I pointed out, let none of you suffer as a murderer and what follows. And even evil speech as though one's main business in spiritual matters is speaking evil of others and tearing them down and falling fault, finding fault, become a bit common of late, you know. And you don't think God is going to judge? That's not Christianity. But if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And when I read that phrase, I'm taken to the catechism and that question that you find in question answer 32 of Lord's Day 12. Why art thou called a Christian? And you can take that, of course, from two perspectives, can't you? You can take that simply from what we call the doctrinal perspective, meaning why is it proper that one who is a believer and yet a sinner should have that wonderful title of being a Christian, of course, which is Jesus' title, who is the Christ, and we should share a title with the Lord Jesus? Why is that proper? How can that be? And, of course, the catechism reminds us, well, that's because the word Christ or Messiah, which are the same words, one Hebrew, one Greek, mean the anointed one. And Christ, of course, was anointed for his redemptive work. But the point of the catechism is, if you belong to Jesus, you also are anointed. And you're anointed, of course, with this Spirit of which we read, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. You have an anointing, and having that anointing as prophet, priests, and kings, you have a right, we have a right to that title to be called Christians. Doctrinally, it's a proper title. 
But there's another question, isn't it? With the emphasis here, why art thou called a Christian? Art thou in this community called a Christian? Art thou known as a Christian? I trust, beloved, you are, but it's for more reasons than simply while well, you were baptized in a respectable church that's reformed and you made a confession of faith and you go to church on a rather regular basis. There are many, of course, who have been baptized by a church that calls itself Christian and have membership in that church and have gone on a fairly regular basis. Those kinds of Christians are a dime a dozen. But when they lived, you could scarcely distinguish them from the outward, outright world in conversation and behavior and ethics and all the rest. They didn't know even what the keeping of vows was all about. But they were known as Christians because they belonged to a certain respectable Christian church. That's not why thou art known as a Christian, I trust. Question, of course, are we walking worthy of the name? That's the great question. And let's not quibble about the name worthy now, shall we? That word, too, is scriptural. Scripture speaks, you know, of walking worthy of the calling wherewith thou art called. That is, as becometh the Christian. Is that how we're living? Now that brings us to the text. Because the Apostle Peter is implying, and if you do, and he speaks first of all, of course, to Christians in the first century who have been converted from paganism and also from the Jewish religion with its work righteousness, confessing Jesus as the Christ, becoming Christians. If you do, he says, you may be sure that you're going to bear some reproach. Not simply because you call yourself a Christian, but because you have lived as Christians should live in the way of godliness, which the world... And the false church is not happy about that you should walk and testify in such a way that somehow would condemn them for false doctrines not only, but for immorality. We don't need the testimony of those people around us. They think they're better than we are. And there comes a reproach. And there comes a time when that reproach becomes not just simply reproach and mocking and ridicule, and demeaning, but what Peter says will be fiery trials as well. And now the great question, in the face of that, counting the cost for living as a Christian and being worthy of the name, will you persist in living as a Christian? Or will you say, there's a way to avoid all this reproach and this animosity and persecution and counting the cost. I'll simply hide my Christianity and blend in with the world. And the apostle is saying, beware. Don't take 
that attitude. And so in this passage here, this conclusion, you see, knowing what Christians face and what we ourselves will face becomes even more intense with an animosity. Knowing what we face and what the early New Testament Christians face, fiery trials, there is encouragement given in this passage to live as a Christian. But also warning and threat that Christians are to lay in heart. Because that phrase, you know, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel has to do with the ungodly, but it's in the hearing of the godly. Lay that to heart as well. Because remember, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? You don't want to suffer their end, do you? So there's a warning here. Admonition. That in some ways even almost amounts to a threat, but the warning to be laid to heart. And so from that point of view, we're going to take hold of this text under the theme, The Righteous scarcely saved by testing means in a humbling, wonderful manner and with a calling necessarily implied. And really what this is, a division of the text verse by verse, 17, 18, and 19, by testing means, that's verse 17, in a humbling, wonderful manner, that's verse 18, and then with a calling necessarily implied, that's verse 19. So let's work ourselves now through this passage for our encouragement and for our warning. What the apostle is dealing with in this section of his epistle is how it is that Christ Jesus accomplishes the saving and the working out of the salvation of his people. Notice I did not say how Christ Jesus obtains the right to salvation or secures our salvation. He obtains the right for our salvation, of course, by his death on the cross. And he secures it by his blood and death. And it's not even talking about how he begins the work of salvation, which is, of course, by the wonder of regeneration and the spirit blowing as the wind, whithersoever he listeth and entering into the heart of a man and breathing life into one who was dead. And a pagan Gentile, an idolater, comes to hear the gospel realizes where he stands before the face of God and worthy, worthy of condemnation and confesses that and says, what must I do to be saved? Repent. Believe. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God or perish. And worked by the Spirit, he casts himself upon the mercy of God in the way of repentance and, and faith. Now talking about that, that initial work and then the immediate fruit. But he's talking about how Christ works out this salvation so that one is, that the one who is saved demonstrates this and lives as a Christian. The heart of the epistle, beloved, is be ye holy as I am holy. That's the heart of the epistle. It's found in P3, 
Peter, isn't it? The first, first, the first chapter. And then he's talking about how one is now converted out of paganism to live in a holy, sanctified way, consecrated as a prophet, priest, and king to Christ his Lord by speech, prophet, priest, by worship as king, by his life of activities, by hand, and all the rest. How Christ works that out and accomplishes that in the life of one who has been renewed and has confessed the Lord Jesus. And beloved, how he accomplishes that and works out our salvation so that this salvation comes to display has to do with the judgment that is referred to in the passage. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. When the apostle refers to judgment here, he's not talking about the final judgment. So that the first ones who will appear in the final judgment are those who belong to the house of God. And he's not even talking here of judgment in the sense of his assessing men as they live. Christ does assess every man's life as he and we live. But that's not what the emphasis here is on here. The emphasis is upon what we call the judgments of nature. Floods and fires and famines and fevers, if you will, diseases of which COVID is only really in the history of the world a rather minor plague. You want to hear of real plagues, you talk about the black plague and the black death that took away at least a third of the population of of Europe and was death, death, death for over a century, they they say. But those are judgments, aren't they? And in those judgments, you can include war, nations going to war, and the devastation and the ruin and the deaths they leave behind them. The judgments that came into the world because of sin and reveal God's judgments against sin. But they fall during the lifetime of those who live upon the earth. And the thing about those judgments, beloved, is they don't discriminate between believer and unbeliever between the carnal and the spiritual. So only the carnal and unbelieving experience COVID or have to deal with cancer or experience the ravages of a famine when it comes or shortage of food or war. You know very well there is no discrimination. There is no distinction when these judgments fall and not only do the unbelievers perish and the ungodly but the godly also suffer these things and sometimes in very tragic tragic ways that bring all kinds of grief and sorrow because death has been visited upon their house and loved ones by one of these judgments that has come in the way of an earthquake tornado you you name it and even war itself But then with respect to these judgments that are of an indiscriminate source, the apostle says, they begin at the house of God. Now, before we get to that phrase, begin, understand what he refers to when he mentions the house of God. 
That's another phrase to describe the church institute. The house of God, which in the New Testament is known as the Christian church. But the Christian church in the New Testament is a broad spectrum, you see. But in that Christian church, you can find the word of God preached, sacraments served, and in various degrees of purity and faithfulness and unpurity, if you will. But it's the house of God because that's where God has his people, and it's not only in the Protestant Reformed churches, is it? It's in other denominations as well, worldwide. And there's gospel that comes to them too, and there is the house of God. But as you know well, even in the house of God, the church institute that goes by the name Christian, where gospel preaching can be heard, they're not all spiritual. They're not all saved. They're not all elect. You have mixed seed, even in the house of God. That's why the second parable is the sowing of the seed, and the sower planted good seed, and then the enemy comes and he plants tares, and The kingdom of heaven is like unto a field where you have wheat and tares. And he's describing the church institute. That's the kingdom of heaven on earth, you see. It's representation. And in the church institute, throughout New Testament history, there's been the spiritual with the carnal. The righteous with the unrighteous. So he's speaking about the house of God as the church institute here that bears the name of Christ and goes by the name of Christian. And he says... Judgment must begin at the house of God. And by that word begin, he simply means with a view to the house of God first. It's not that the judgment starts with the church and then after Christ is done with judgments falling upon the church, now he begins to have judgments fall on the ungodly world. That's not the idea. The word begin is a Greek word that has to do with view towards, emphasis upon. And what the apostle is saying, these judgments fall, whether you can see it or not, even their severity, with the church and the salvation and the preservation of his church on earth in the New Testament age. With a view to, you see, beginning. It has that church... Primarily in mind, it's true, the ungodly also suffer these things, and, a God, and God has a word to the ungodly through these things. But still, the judgments fall, even as they fall today, and will continue to fall and intensify with the church. The gospel-preaching church, with its mixed seed even, first in mind. And the early New Testament Christians had to understand that because they struggled with that following conversion. And, beloved, you can understand why these who have been delivered from paganism in some ways as they themselves suffered the judgments of God and disease and so on and ravages of war and who knows what and death by earthquakes and what we call accidents questioned, what's the word of God to us through these judgments? When we are pagans, unbelieving, and we look back, We always viewed them as the wrath of the gods on us. An earthquake would come and buildings would collapse and people would die. Oh, this is the judgments of God. They're angry with us. 
Now we're converted to Christianity. We worship the one true God. And there's still earthquakes and buildings collapse and sometimes Christians die. Or we still get these diseases. Maybe they didn't know it was cancer, but they were dying of cancer back then too. Tumors. But we're saved. Is this the wrath of God continuing? Shouldn't we be spared these things? When we were pagans, we can understand that the judgment of God as we didn't worship him, but idols might fall upon us. But here we are, we're saved. Shouldn't we be delivered from these things? Spared these things? Is still God angry with us? Still wrath? They struggled with it. And then you can add to that this. And now we were persecuted besides. You know, it was safer when we weren't Christians. At least then all we had to deal with were these judgments. These tragedies. Now we have to deal with these tragedies and these judgments that still fall and suffer death in one way or the other. And we have to bear the reproach of Christ as well. Becoming a Christian has added to our suffering. And you tell us we should still remain Christians. I think it might be better to renounce this Christianity and just go back to living under the judgments of God. At least we wouldn't have to suffer for Christ's sake and be deprived of property and who knows what. You can understand, beloved, why they sought answers, why they struggled. Why doesn't the Lord Jesus, now that we have confessed him, as we read in the gospel, heal us from all our diseases and keep us from all these judgments and we live life happily ever after. But it doesn't work out that way. And now why? And the apostle is explaining that. He says whether you can see it or not, the judgments that fall that are expressions of God's anger towards sin, when they fall now as a believer, don't fall on you as expressions of his judgment and his wrath. But they have a view now with respect to your salvation and the preservation of the church and its witness in the world till Christ is pleased to come again. That's what he's saying here. And let me now support that and illuminate that by turning to Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb opened one of the seals. Recall that vision, the seven-sealed book. None is worthy to open the seven-sealed book. And then they saw the Lion of Judah's tribe, and a lamb came. He's the lion of Judah's tribe. He's the great shepherd, isn't he? The one with the rod of iron and the staff for his people. And he's worthy on the basis of his shed blood and suffering on behalf of you to open the book. That is to control the whole of New Testament history. That seven-sealed book, which the rest of the Revelation will give in symbolic form, won't it? So he opens the first seal. I heard the voice of thunder. Four beasts said, come and see. And behold, as he opens that first book, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Representing what, beloved? Well, 
representing the gospel. Christ Jesus is the rider on a white horse, and he goes forth conquering into conquer, and that's New Testament history. The gospel goes, and it is a conquering power. Some might not realize that, but you know how many souls have been delivered from Satan's power under the preaching of the gospel, by the power of the gospel, as it's applied by the Holy Spirit to the heart of a man and brought him to conversion, a knowledge of himself and repentance and faith. In the millions, what does Revelation say? I saw 10,000 times 10,000 in heaven. Most of whom, New Testament saints, say by the power of the gospel, the one riding upon his great white horse, and by the rod of his iron, smashing down the kingdom in the hearts of men who are deceived and in bondage and setting them free, and then with a shepherd's staff leading them as his sheep. But notice, he continues to open seals. First, the gospel, and now a second seal, and a second beast, and a horse that's red. Power is given to him that sat on them to take peace from the earth. This is war, the red horse representing war, as many of you know, giving to them a great sword. He opens the third seal in verse 5, and a third beast, a black horse. He had a pair of balances in his hand, and touching out the wine and the oil, the black horse, which has to do with economics and what works through famine and so on. You have the haves and the have-nots and social tension as a result, the judgments of God that fall in the way of famine and floods and all the work, all the rest. And then he opens the fourth seal, death and hell. Really, the grave follows with him. And he's uh, pale, almost green, representing disease in many ways that leads to death and, and the grave. But the point is, beloved, those three horses, the red, the black, and the pale, are all in the service of the white horse. He's first, he's primary, and the rest of these that represent the judgments of, 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 the, of the Lord Jesus upon society in the New Testament age are in the service of that gospel. That's true, you know. And that can be demonstrated if one studies church history, how these judgments were used. In fact, in many ways, God used those judgments even to preserve his early New Testament church from Rome, which, as you know, soon became weary of these Christians in their midst, and some of them wanted to simply stamp out the early Christian church, and they had the power to do it. But there were judgments that were falling on Rome that prevented Rome from simply focusing on the early New Testament church to extinguish its witness. And one of the forces was the barbarians coming from the north already in the first century. And they had to turn their attention in many ways to protect their borders lest the barbarian hordes uh, overrun their cities and their empires. They could only give them a partial attention and the church survived. But even think of persecution, beloved, in the early New Testament church. When the Jews went after the Christians who were, who were all living closely populated in Jerusalem. And the Jews said, we've got to stamp out this Christianity. And a persecution broke out. And what happened? It was like stamping on a fire and the spark spread. And Christians fled. And where did they go? Antioch is one place, wasn't it? Where they were first called Christians. To which Barnabas and Paul would be called as missionaries and preachers in, in time. But the use of persecution even being used to spread the gospel as Christians would leave the area and take their word with them and then be used by Christ to establish his churches. They were forced 
you see, to spread with the word by means of persecution. There's another purpose for persecution, but that's one of the, one of the purposes of it. And I want to mention one more striking emphasis of the use of the red horse in the service of the gospel that in some ways I don't think we're even aware of, but in the time of the Reformation, as the gospel was restored and broke loose like a fire burning and was spreading in Rome with the Pope and the Emperor wanted to extinguish it in the 1500s. But if you know anything about history, you will know it's during the mid-1500s as the Reformation is beginning and their people are becoming Protestant rather than Roman Catholic. There's a force coming from the east, isn't there? The Seljuk Turks. And they went from victory to victory till they got to the gates of Vienna. And Vienna in Austria was the gate to the whole of West Europe. And if they had overcome Vienna, they would have entered into the whole of West Europe and probably been simply an invincible force. They had to withstand the Turks as the force came from the Roman Catholic princes knew this. They couldn't give full attention to the Reformation and the Protestants. Plus, those Roman Catholic princes knew they knew they needed the Protestant princes' help if they were going to withstand this horde and this force to the, to the east of them. So they had to negotiate in the interest of their own self-preservation. God using that red horse to give space to the Reformation and those who were preaching the gospel that the Roman emperor, the Holy Roman Empire, Emperor Charles II, Charles II, I believe he was, along with the Pope, couldn't pull, put full focus and force to extinguish the Protestant faith at that time, something we're in some ways not so aware of because we deal more with the doctrinal controversy, but that red horse was running, beloved, in the service of the preservation and the spread of the gospel and the Protestant churches. And so you could make a case for this in instance after instance. Right now the world has its own problems, doesn't it? Right now. And you know as well as I do, there are those out there of the most liberal liberal mentality who wouldn't, mar- who wouldn't mind tomorrow of closing down our Christian schools and what we teach in those Christian schools to our children, brainwashing them as far as they are concerned because we teach them not only truth but what's moral and immoral as it's loose in society, silence this kind of a witness. But they can't right now, can they? Because there's other things they first have to deal with. When they have finally dealt with those matters and had some peace amongst themselves, now, now let's go after and silence this, Christ, this brand of Christianity we don't want in our midst anymore. That's what Peter is getting at, you see, in the text. We suffer the ravages of those judgments, that's true. But in the end, keep the larger picture. It has to do with the preservation of the church as it bears witness to the world in this New Testament age, in the service of the spread of the gospel and the gathering of Christ's church. And there are things we must suffer as that as Christ takes it upon himself to do that in his own wisdom and in his own way. So judgment must begin at the house of God. It's done primarily with a view to the salvation of his 
church, even as believers have to suffer while this takes place, the gathering and the preservation of his church as it bears witness to Christ Jesus and is used by Christ to gather his own before he comes again. But it's also, beloved, serves another purpose when you think of it, doesn't it? Persecution. It's a way that God even purges his church. We said in the house of God you have spiritual and carnal seed. And there are times when the carnal seed becomes outspoken. It's not willing simply to live quietly amongst the spiritual, but they begin to rise up against the spiritual and will change their doctrines and even go against their, the way they live. And comes persecution. They don't have real faith. And they say, that's not the way we became Christians. That's not the way we, we, we're not going to suffer these things because they're identified with, the, with that church. They don't, the world's not going to distinguish you belong to those churches. We're all alike despicable to us. We'll go after the whole, whole lot of you. And they leave. They don't want to bear this reproach. And the church itself is purged of some of them who would cause who knows what difficulties and troubles and, and lead astray. There's a purging. In the Old Testament, God used that, you know, with Israel. Keep the spiritual who would be willing to suffer these things and the carnal wanted no part of it. Count us out. And so in the New Testament church, as well for a purging and a purifying those who were only making a vain confession versus those who were sincere and as they remain sincere it's for the strengthening of the church and the holding of its true doctrines and biblical confession but even for our own purifying is it not our own strengthening you know well beloved when things go well Devotions can suffer. Sincerity of faith. There's so, much, there's so much to be gotten, so much getting to get when we have time, when it's convenient for us. You know, it's planting time now, and it's very, very, very busy. And when we got some time, well, we'll set it apart and pray to God and do our devotions. Not only true with farmers, it's true with others as well, of course. But then the Lord touches one of you with cancer. And suddenly, planting and harvesting isn't first thing on the docket, is it? Suddenly, the importance of prayer and devotions and seeking God for his grace. And it's not simply when it's convenient, when it works out, when I have time. Lord, we have the need now. Let us hold our hands and pray now shall we and call upon God's name for the grace we need for this good brother or this sister or a family member suddenly the Lord has taught us something about priorities hasn't he even when they have these great tragedies and a young man is taken by death in an awful automobile accident what about the spiritual realities life isn't simply fun 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 there are spiritual realities eternal verities We need the Lord Jesus. Lord, hear us when we cry for our spiritual well-being, don't you see? We're the kind of people who need it because that's our natures. And the Lord has a way of bringing it home, does it? Even the way of these judgments that fall. But in the end, for our spiritual benefit, affliction has been for my profit, a wise man says as he looks back upon his life and not only for me 
for the Church of Christ Jesus as well. So, must begin. Uh, the Lord Jesus has us with our spirituality in mind, even as we must suffer these things, receive it, beloved, by faith. But notice, then he goes on to say a little bit more about that judgment beginning at the house of God for the benefit, first of all, of his own church and the people in his church. If at first it begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel? What the apostle is saying is something rather interesting. He's saying, Christian, understand that if the Lord Jesus is willing to deal even so severely with you as a believer in a severe way of suffering. What do you think he's going to do with those who have turned their back on the gospel? If those who have heard the gospel and obeyed the gospel as it calls to repentance and faith, and still you're dealt with sometimes in a very severe manner by the will of the Lord Jesus... How do you think he's going to deal with those who are not Christians, who deny his name, who even persecute those who are Christians? Do you think they're not going to be dealt with in utter severity? And you want to return to that kind of life? To be identified with them? Are you sure? You better be very, very sure. Because if you're going to forsake the Christian faith, You're going to be dealt with by this Lord Jesus who loves his own. And if he deals with his own in severity, don't imagine that he will not deal with those who hate his name and gospel and his people with deepest, deepest severity compared to what they will suffer, what you and I suffer, is not so terrible after all because the grace is there that is sufficient to bear these things now a man may say but that sounds like a threat and a warning yeah that's what it amounts to in some ways a threat and a warning as the canon speak of them and one may say but I don't need a threat and a warning the Lord Jesus died in the cross He loved me, I see that, and I'm filled with gratitude. That's all I need to know, and now I'm going to serve him. Wonderful, wonderful, that's all you need. Now talk to elders who are dealing with members of the church who have wandered from the way. And elders have to bring to such who have wandered from the way the cross, that's true. But that's not all elders bring to those who have wandered from the way and who will not hear the warnings and admonitions, is it? Elders must say, you're on the perishing way. You don't repent of this sin and of your treatment of this and that other one. You're on the perishing way. Do you know what the end of the perishing way is? There's a threat there. Yeah. Christ Jesus will have them hear that threat as they live in sin unrepentant. Come to your senses, man or woman or young person, and confess your departure from the approved way, the way in which you experience the approval of God, and return to the courts of the church and sitting under the gospel for the salvation of your immortal soul. There has to be the warnings and those threats. I can tell you from experience that I've sat in the 
living room of individuals of a congregation in the process of leaving their, their family and wife or their husband, but they're right with the Lord. Just ask them, oh, I'm right with the Lord. As they live in sin and break their vow and desert those to whom they're supposed to be faithful. What they're right with. Don't deceive yourself. You're not right with the Lord. You're under his disapproval. And if you continue this way unrepentant, you will show for all you're saying you're a believer, you're not rooted in him, and you will perish in the end. A love that also needs to be brought home, doesn't it? And the elders who have served as elder know that well. And sometimes, God be thanked, that bears a good fruit. A man considers his way and the end if he persists in this way and comes to his senses like the prodigal and confesses and returns to the bosom of the church and family, Lord willing, and to the embrace of Christ himself. That first of all, and that's verse 17. Now, that's where the emphasis of my sermon is, so the next verses won't take as long. But you go on to verse 18. If the righteous are scarcely saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, here it speaks of the righteous. And that's a subset, you see, of the house of God. In the house of God, there are the righteous. And when the apostle speaks of the righteous here, he's not simply speaking of the justified. Now, these righteous are numbered with the justified by faith. But he has in mind here how they live. They make a confession to be Christians. You know, if you suffer as a Christian, they made a confession to be a Christian. But now they are called to live upright as the righteous. But that's what he has in mind. Living upright is clear from the text, really, when you consider it. But he contrasts them with the ungodly and the sinners. He doesn't contrast the righteous with the unbeliever and the condemned, which would be more in a legal form. He, can, he, he distinguishes them from the ungodly and the sinner, which, of course, is the way of life. And what he has in mind here is what you read in, the, in Matthew chapter 5, one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those, blessed art thou when men shall revile you and speak ill of you. Blessed is the man who is persecuted for righteousness sake. Remember that? Blessed is he who is persecuted for righteousness sake. No one's persecuted for saying he's justified. If all you say, I'm numbered with the justified, that's fine with the world. What they're not fine with, what does not set well with them, is when you live uprightly and by your very life testify against ungodliness and against sin. That they don't want in their midst. You're living as a righteous, as a... What makes you think you're better than we are? We never said that, but they recognize this is godliness and it troubles them and they want to remove that testimony against their lives. What you find here, actually in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. You're numbered with the upright who are willing to count the cost, you see, for Jesus' sake. Happy are you. They have identified you as a disciple of Christ. And what he suffers in some ways, you will suffer. But take that as a testimony of your life and the sincerity of your confession. But now, the apostle says, scarcely saved. What in the world does he mean? Scarcely 
saved, as if a man could go lost after all, perhaps. God, by his power, might not be able to keep one who is one of his children. So for a while you think you're a believer, then you doubt whether you're a believer, and pretty soon you just become an unbeliever, and the Lord has failed to save another one who was once under, had the spirit of, of Christ. Of course not. It doesn't mean scarcely saved, as though it's almost impossible for God to save one. And it's impossible, almost impossible for God to save the upright. How is he going to save the ungodly and sinner? Rather, what it means here is with greatest difficulty. Scarcely saved has to do with, with greatest difficulty. And that's true, beloved, from the believer's perspective, and even from God's perspective, as I want to explain in just a moment. But from the believer's perspective, as the upright scarcely say because of what's required of us to battle against sin, and that is a difficult matter for us to do, beloved, and then to bear reproach for Christ's sake, and then to be willing to bear that reproach and count the cost, left to ourselves, we'd be overwhelmed. Forget it. I don't need this added animosity. I don't need this added reproach and counting more cost. Life is difficult enough as it is without adding the reproach of Christianity to it. And sometimes with fiery trial, some had to die at the stake, you know, and face being burned alive and still hold to their faith, to persevere with greatest difficulty, beloved. But what's impossible for man is possible for God, you see. How they needed grace, grace, grace. And the apostle says, as you live this way and seek that grace, you will find that grace. But it's going to be a difficult way of salvation as you confess Christ and suffer for his name. And then have to withstand sin as well. And we should know that also. To remain upright, to remain upright in this present world, beloved. How much prayer it takes, how much grace it takes, how difficult it is, scarcely saved. Saved with greatest difficulty for which we need the Holy Spirit himself and we're going to remain standing. But even from God's point of view, from a certain point of view, and I mean from this point of view, beloved, what we cost God to save us in view of our sin. We heard some of that this morning with respect to Adam and Eve. Piece of fruit, friendship of God. We weigh it in a balance and we value the fruit, the forbidden fruit, more than the friendship of God. For that sin, payment must be made. Think of the man, the loved, who wrote this epistle. Simon Peter. You're going to deny me, Simon Peter. Oh, no, Lord, not me. You know me better than that, Lord. I'll never deny. I'll die for you. And he denied his Lord three times with cursing and swearing at the end. What did it take God to save a man like that? What does it take God to save men and women like us? The death of Emmanuel. The death of the gift and giving of his son to our degradation and shame and to his own wrath. Scarcely say, that is, with greatest difficulty at the cost of God's own son, you see. And if 
That's how one who is God's own is saved. How in the world can a man outside of Christ possibly be saved? I don't need the Christian faith. I'll work it out myself. I'll live somehow. Thou fool, not outside of Christ. There is no hope. It's in Christ by grace, or there is no salvation. Because to be saved cost God all. And he did not he did not sacrifice his son, beloved, in vain, did he? And so scarcely saved, surely saved. It's not calling to question the certainty of salvation. It's calling it's calling to our attention the cost of our salvation. A cost to God to save sinners. But the cost of living as a Christian as well. And the difficulty and the need for grace day by day by day. As judgment falls upon those who obey not the gospel and say we're not going to live according to the call of the gospel and its requirements. Such, beloved, are in the perishing way. And that's going to be a way of severe, severe suffering when all is said and done and the final judgment falls. And that brings us, beloved, to verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Wherefore, says, in light of what you know is going to be the end of those who know not Christ, who turn their back on Christ, consider their end. Wherefore, in light of that, let yourself suffer according to the will of God. Because you, the sufferings that we will suffer do not compare to that which is laid up in those who, to the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. One thing you know the scripture says to those who will destroy your body. Fear not them. Fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell. That's, what you, that's the one you have to fear. You better seek refuge from that wrath in his son by confessing the Lord Jesus and then persevering as his disciple. Notice, according to the will of God, who brings us suffering, commit your souls to him. That is, has to do with your spiritual life, doesn't it? Your body may perish, but you committed your soul to him, your spiritual life, as unto a faithful creator. Why creator, not savior? He's the savior. But here the emphasis is upon the power, the power of God. He said, let there be, and there was. Out of nothing, he can create the whole of the universe. He created your souls. You think he doesn't have the power to preserve your life, your soul, to enable you to withstand even the evil one and persecution? He's a faithful creator. Sometimes we may be unfaithful, as Simon Peter was. But he's faithful. He knows how to keep his own. Put your confidence in him in well-doing. There it is. Because some said, well, if we don't live so openly as Christians, we become like Nicodemus. We can escape the sufferings. The apostle says, don't think that way. Live openly as a Christian. Be identified with your Lord. Count the cost in well-doing. And trust that God will keep you and give you the grace necessary not to deny your Lord, but to confess him to the very end. And so, beloved, there is that encouragement, isn't there? The calling. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Don't be ashamed of his name. And trust him 
to whom you've given your soul and trusted your soul to keep you to the end. And there may be bitterness in life, but in the end, beloved, to those who have trusted their souls to him, there's going to be a glory, isn't there? A glory, as I said this morning, that outshines the sun. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the warnings, the exhortations, and the promises of thy faithfulness, of thy power, and of a Savior who gave himself, and having given himself for us, will do what is necessary to preserve us through every trial unto himself. So we pray as we face our various trials day by day, entrusting our souls to him, we may be kept and Walk as Christians, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.